The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, your home for discussion and analysis of Cincinnati Reds baseball all year long. Now here's your host, Chad Dotson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Red Leg Nation Radio. This is Chad Dotson, and with me today is, I'm really excited about uh, tonight's guest. It's John Arardi, and if you uh, have read anything about the Reds over the last few years, uh, a number of years, then you're going you're gonna to know who John Arardi is, author of a number of quality uh, Reds books, some of my favorite books, frankly. And we'll talk about those a little bit, but I also want to talk about his new book that's out now, Tony Perez, From Cuba to Cooperstown. And uh, John, really, uh, really glad to finally get a chance to catch up with you. Oh, pleasure's all mine, Chad. I'm looking forward to this very much. Well, you know, uh, you've written a, a book with a buddy of mine, Joel Luckup, uh, The Wire to Wire Reds. Uh, you and Joel collaborated yeah. on that. Great, great book. If you haven't read that one, go get it. And, of course, a couple of my other favorites, Big Red Dynasty and uh, Cincinnati's Crossley filled with Greg Rhodes. And, of course, Joel and Greg have both been on the podcast before, and I, so I'm really sorry it took so long to get you on here. No problem. That's pretty good advanced feeling right there by those, by those two guys. Yeah, good guys, no doubt about it. So um, let's just go ahead and dive right into this book. And, and for, uh, as I said, the book is uh, Tony Perez. I keep wanting to say from Cuba to Cooperstown because that's the way you talk about it, yeah. some in the book. But it, yeah, it's yeah. A, a gorgeous book. Um, and where did, the, where did the idea to to dig into Tony Perez come from? I think the big thing for me was, and I, I get this question a lot, you know, why book on Tony Perez? Well, I think the simple answer is that Nobody's ever done one before, and I think that largely it's because so much has been written about the other guys and the team as a whole, the great big red machine, but I think a lot of it had to do with Tony personally not having that big ego that some of the other guys had, and, and more importantly, he really didn't want the book. I mean, he, he, he felt like his whole life was kind of under the radar in the sense that he was always sort of behind the scenes guy. I mean, with that team, he was very much front and center, but in the public eye, he was more so, um, more so behind the scenes because much of his work was done, um, behind closed doors. Uh, it was in the clubhouse primarily where he had his biggest effect. I mean, obviously he was a great player with all those RBIs and being a hall of famer, but I think his, his attitude was, I just want to win baseball games. Everything else will take care of itself. And, and that's why I think largely, uh, he was under the radar. Well, you're right, and he was front and center for that team, and it's surprising there's been uh, so little really written about uh, Tony Perez. Uh, it, you know, a thought that occurred to me as I was uh, reading the book, if you had written a straight biography of Tony Perez, I would have been really eager to read that. I mean, I would have been there uh, day one, ready to read it. But this is a little bit more than just a straight biography of Tony Perez, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um 
so much of it has to do with, as you call it, Cuba, and that's how they pronounce it in Cuba, is uh, Cuba. And uh, Tony was born there in uh, May 14th, I believe, of 1942. And so much of the impact upon him, and I think this is his, probably his greatest regret, is that it wasn't so much for his personal ego that he cared about uh, people not knowing of his uh, impact in America, but it was largely because the life he lived in, in Cuba was uh, one of, with his dad, lived, uh, listening to baseball on the radio and watching TV, uh, the, the great players who would come back to Cuba uh, in the wintertime and play, and play ball. And then, more importantly for them, uh, Tony remembers very clearly uh, the 1955 World Series uh, that uh, Brooklyn Dodgers uh, won over the Yankees. And, and he, he, he remembers, I remember, we call this distinctly, he was at the Hall of Fame during his orientation day in May of uh, 2000. And he saw the photo of the great Sandy Amaros uh, making a catch down the left field line. Uh, and his attitude was, geez, I've seen that before. I saw that in person. And yet nobody knows of me. Uh, and it's true because I said to him one time, I said, Tony, was it ever mentioned uh, in, in uh, you know, Havana or anywhere else in the country that you were this great player who was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the only Cuban major leaguer to make the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. And he put his fingers about a sixteenth of an inch apart, indicating to me that, yeah, there was a mention, but it was only a line or two in the Havana Times back home. So um, his his regret, I think, was that the kids in uh, Cuba could not uh, grow up the way he did, which was to uh, have um, uh, role models uh from their baseball players who made it good, made it big in the United States, and uh, would come home in the wintertime and play winter ball. And, and that was, I think, the big reason Tony isn't known is that except for a few games he got to play for the Havana Sugar Kings junior team, uh, he never never, never played ball in Cuba in, in a public sense. He, he, uh, he just never, never had that opportunity, and therefore nobody knows it even to this day except in his hometown. It, that really sort of blew my mind, you know. I, I, first of all, I've I've read a lot about uh, the Red, certainly about Tony Perez. I've uh, written a lot. Uh, I've researched, and it really just blew my mind that he wasn't uh, a superstar. wasn't uh, sort of a hometown hero, maybe in his hometown, but not in his home country. You know, Raldus Chapman came to Cincinnati in 2010 and really just didn't even really know who Tony Perez was, and I just. I'm not sure how that's possible. Is it just because of the uh, the political aspect there, where they just anything that happened outside of Cuba, they weren't really getting uh, the information, or you know, how can it be that one of the greatest players in Major League Baseball history, in American baseball history, is right. not just uh, uh, revered in his home country? I, I think I, I, I think definitely was the case that uh, Castro restricted the news of uh, of Cuban players in America. He didn't want. He didn't want people to know of their successes over here. And that was that was when I think I knew in the back of my mind, not the front of my mind, but the back of my mind, that I'd probably do a book on this someday, is Araldus was introduced to the Cincinnati media back in 2010. And I saved my question at the very end. I didn't go into the uh, press conference thinking I'd answer, ask this question, but it just occurred to me at some point. I thought, well, I'm going to save this question to the very end. And I said, Araldus Chapman, do you know who Tony, or was we, we call it in Cuba, Tony Perez is, and he he said no. He said I don't even know who it is. Who is he? And I explained it to him that his countryman was the only you know Cuban major league in the Hall of Fame, and he just had no idea who it was. And I think I knew then that um someday I'd do a story. But when I got to Cuba and I got to the airport, and we jumped in the cab and rode into our Airbnb unit in Havana, 
and I asked the cabbie, who was a really a good baseball fan, big fan of the Havana uh, Industrialis, uh, and would take his two kids to the games on a lot of weekends. I asked him, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm doing a book on Tony Perez. Tony Perez. And he said, who? I said, I said, well, well my problem is my Espanol. It's not, not too good, right. so I just pronounced it correctly. I said, Tony Perez. And he said, Tony who? He didn't know who he was, but he knew who Joe Morgan was, Johnny Bench, and uh, and Pete Rose. So that that you're right. It blew my mind too. And, and I thought to myself, well, the the the, the slate the slate is blank. I'll have a good, good opportunity to tell the story I want to tell. But it's going to be a case of piecing a lot of things together because if this cabbie doesn't know who Tony Perez is, then nobody's going to know. And sure enough, that proved to be the case. Only in his hometown of uh, Central Violeta, about 300 miles from Havana, did people know who Tony Perez was. I believe you. I, I read what you wrote, and I hear what you're saying, but it's still, it just, it amazes me because yeah. he's he's so legendary in Cincinnati, you know, just, uh, and in American baseball, not just Cincinnati, he's a Hall of Famer. And uh, one yeah. reason why the story of uh, Perez and Cuba is, I think, even more interesting to Reds fans, obviously the Tony Perez connection, certainly, but the Reds have had kind of a, I don't know if you call it a Cuban pipeline, but a lot of great Cuban players have yep. come through this Reds organization, haven't they? Even to today. They really have. They really have, and it, and it all started the first two uh, uh, Cubans in the major leagues. Major leagues, as I understand it, I, there may have been guys before this, but it was in 1911. Uh, the Reds had uh, uh, Rafael Almeida and um, Armando Marsans, uh, both outfielders. And um, as, I, as I remember this, certainly Marsans was Almeida was more was wasn't as well known as uh, Armando Marsans, who was actually a a great player, a lot of speed, terrific outfielder, a good hitter. And that dates um, back to 1911, up, right? That's like oh, back to 1911. 1911 or actually, I think I think they debuted uh, on July 4th, 1911. I think in Chicago and uh, uh, the Reds. I think at the point it was uh, August Herman was the um, was the president of the ball club, and uh, he more or less made the point to everybody because there was a lot of heat coming his way for signing these two players, as I call them, off color, but they weren't colored. They were, as, as he put it in one of his phrases, pure as a couple of bars of Castilian soap. In other words, they were um, uh, of, of uh, white blood, right. not, not uh, African-American blood. And I mean, literally, it's tricky was a matter of the color of your skin as to whether or not you were allowed to play Major League Baseball. And then a few years later, uh, overshadowing those guys was uh, the great Adolfo Luque, who was the great pitcher who had one of the most fabulous seasons ever in 1923 for the Reds, but played for the Reds in the 1919 World Series, had a nice impact there. Adolfo Luque, and he, he, to this day, is uh, known in Cuba. There's a big statue of him, a couple of a big uh, a bust of his head at uh Estadio Latino Americano, uh, which is the ballpark, big uh, professional ballpark in Havana. And uh, the other great uh, Cuban player, of course, was Martin Diego. But those two guys are revered, revered to this day, Diego and Adolfo Luque, the, the red, because they played uh, so much of their great baseball, you know, within the borders of Cuba, and Tony never got to do that. Yeah, and Adolfo Luque, of course, is a guy that Reds fans really need to learn more about and who needs to be uh, publicized more, I guess. One of the great pitchers in Red's history and uh, yeah. part of this Cuban pipeline. All the way early in the book, 
you talk, I think it was early in the book, you talk about a, a sort of a certain flair, the way Cubans uh, learn to pitch uh, down there. And as, mm-hmm. as you're writing that, I'm thinking, oh, that, that sounds exactly like Rizel Iglesias. And then, of course, you mentioned Rizel Iglesias. He's, yep. just, he's a different sort of pitcher, and he's a perfect example of, uh, of some of the, uh, I don't know, uh, the flair, I guess, that we've seen over the years uh, from, from Cuban pitchers. Yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, when I started writing, I mean, I knew about Adolfo Luque, but uh, but I didn't really get to use his name in the modern day sense until I was talking to Iglesias. He he started that red that red's opening day, you know, a few years ago, and that's when I brought up the fact that Adolfo Luque had played. Um, it started, I think, three opening days for the Reds, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I just brought out the fact that Rizal was the first Cuban to start an opening day for Cincinnati. And uh, Rizal, he was aware of Adolfo Luque, and uh, he was very proud of the fact that um, I would bring him up in the context of Luque. And um, I'm pretty sure, you know, I, the, the interesting thing is I haven't had an opportunity um, to get the to get the book to Rizal. I, I will in the next couple of weeks when they come back from this present road trip. Uh, because I think that, I know his family, his father especially, is a big baseball fan and will just be so proud of his son to be mentioned in the same context as Luke. So that that that's going to be a real joy for me to get him a book. Yeah, that will be a treat. It, but I guess back to Perez, it's kind of like there's just a, a collective uh, national uh, blind spot for these years. I guess you call them the Castro years for what uh, what happened here. Um, some of the old guys, Diego and, uh, and Luque and – uh, but Tony Perez is just somehow uh, uh, several generations have just missed, and boy, what a guy they missed! I mean, he, you know, we we talk about his baseball ability, but he he's a he's a genuine guy, right? Yeah, he he is. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, he's he's largely been forgotten if he ever if ever he were even known. I mean, uh, it was uh, Vince Scully, the great Dodgers announcer, who brought up Martin Diego Senior in the context of. Uh, of uh, Puig, uh, the great uh, Dodger player, and he, he, it was just his way. It was Vin's way of saying that, yeah, you got Puig, and everybody loves him. He's a very popular, you know, Dodger. He had a little falling out there at one point, but I think he's popular again. He uh, he made the point that you you, you know you know Puig, but you got to learn about guys like Diego and guys such as that, and, and that's why you know for me, it's it's been exciting that this recent wave of, of great Cuban players, I'm talking about the Puigs and the Yuli Gurriels and, you know, Rollis Chapman, people like that, is that people are becoming more familiar now with this connection that American baseball has had with Cuba. And um, for years and years, Tony was, um, was the only Cuban. I mean, he came up, uh, I think the last player, last two players out after him, I think I've got this right, where um, Tony Oliva and um, Tito Fuentes, it's actually Bert Campanaris came out a little later than Tony too, but because Tony had such a long career, that 23-year career, uh, for many years he was the only Cuban um, to be playing in the major leagues. Uh, of course, played through in 1986, but um, there have been some good players who um, were born in Cuba and came over to this country at young ages, guys like... Uh, uh, Barbero Garbet, who played for the Tigers, and uh, Rafael Pamero, who uh, came over as a very young child, settled in the United States. But it, it's the guys like uh, Perez that I 
I have regrets for because, um, again, it wasn't an ego thing for Tony. And to me, I speak of no ego. Well, his father was the exact same way. That was the most important thing I learned in going to Cuba and going to his hometown is that where he was, he was, he's known there, but people would bring up his Tony's father, who was very much, uh, like Tony. I mean, Tony's a chip off the old block. Jose Manuel was a very even keeled guy, uh, would be, uh, the type of person who would settle, you know, any problems in the neighborhood, people would look to him for comfort and, and, and console. And just the very fact that Tony came out like he did, which is remarkable. He's to this day, when they have reunions, he's the one guy that can move among the Latinos and the uh, Caucasian and the African-Americans freely. And that's because, again, you know, no agenda, totally transparent, very funny guy, always the instigator behind the scenes. Everybody loved him because he knew he just wanted to win. It wasn't a matter of caring about his personal stats. So, you know, that's the part of Tony that came to life for me in going to Cuba. Walking those streets, uh, in Central Violeta, where Tony walked in 1972 after an absence of nine years from Cuba because he couldn't go home after the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was actually home during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. But for people too young to remember, they don't understand that that was a very difficult, tense time between the between Cuban people and in America. You know, Tony being home, he had just gone home after the uh, 19. 62 season in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and he was five months get late getting out of Cuba uh, to go to the States to play baseball for 1963 in, in Macon. And once he got to Macon, his father told him, he said, Tony, you, you won't be able to come home for a while because it's, 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 it's tense. You'll never, you probably won't ever get back out. You barely got out this time. Just stay in the States. So nine years later, Tony goes home. His father's on his deathbed in 1972. And it was a remarkable recovery by Jose Manuel Tony's dad uh, during that time because he, the dad literally for the first time in months was able to get out of bed and, and actually take a walk down the streets uh, of Central Violeta with his son. And, and that to me was just so emotional because I was walking those same streets as, uh, as Tony and Jose Manuel did back in 1972. And Tony was so moved by that occasion that when he was talking about that with the great Reds writer, Bob Herzl, uh, in, in coming to Red Spring Training in, in 1972 because he went home in November of 72. I'm sorry, went home in uh, November of 72. So, yeah, it would have been 73. He was talking to uh, Bob Hurts about it. He, he couldn't finish the story. He said it was, it was just too emotional for me. I can't I can't say more without breaking down. So, again, uh, to, to walk those same streets that Tony walked with his dad, that was uh, very meaningful to me. Well, you noted that uh, his father told him to go when the Reds came calling in 1960, and then told him to stay after that season, even though yep. he knew it might it meant he might never see his son again. Uh, you know, that's that's a difficult thing enough. How painful is it for Tony to talk about? You've talked you you know him uh, fairly well, and you've talked to him many times, and right? Been around him. How difficult right. is it for him to talk about the fact that his parents, his brothers and sisters, never saw him play, and uh, and that he was forced to leave them? To, to seek out this, you know, this, uh, this dream, uh, even though it meant, you know, being away from his family for so much. Well, the one, one telling anecdote for me was I was told early on that this is, I don't even want to identify who told me this story, but it's definitely true. There's no question about it. Um, Tony's second born son, Eduardo Perez, who played for the Reds, of course, a great, yeah, we've great heard Cardinals of him. player, great <laughs> card for sure a great clutch hitter and still to this day doing games on radio effect uh 
I know he's got the upcoming game. Uh, I think uh, it's coming Tuesday night. Uh, he's going to have Henry Henry Aaron on the air with him for an extended period. But the point is that when when Eduardo asked uh, his father, uh, "Hey, Dad, can you come home with me?" I say Cuba, can you come home, meaning Cuba, with me uh, to do a documentary about your growing up there and becoming this only Cuban major leaguer in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Tony said, no, I can't. It's too, it's too, it's too raw to me. My emotions are too raw. I really can't, I really can't do that. And, um, when I heard that, I knew that, you know, Tony would never, ever, uh, consult with me on the book, would never agree, uh, to go to Cuba with me because he wouldn't go with his own son. You know, I I had no chance. So the the answer is, it was so raw and so emotional for Tony. Uh, he couldn't go back with his son. That told me everything I needed to know. It was almost like a person who serves in combat and can't can't talk about it because it was just too too raw, too near to him to to express himself about it. And that's the way Tony is about Cuba. Yeah, and it remains that way all these decades later. Seems like. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's uh, let's talk briefly about the time after he left because I think it's really interesting. Uh, there's some good stories about when he uh, he gets to America. He's uh, his first day in camp. He's issued what he believed was Tony uh, Tony Ted Klazuski's old uniform, barely fit him, and then he goes to Geneva, New York, and yeah. he's playing with another great red. So and barely spoke English. I mean, this is a this is sort of a whirlwind time for him. Yeah, the the funny thing about that uh, anecdote about Tony getting he thinks big clues uniform in the 1960 was that he said literally he said those those sleeve holes you know the armpits they would they went down to my waist he said i look ridiculous because <laughs> he, he was just a skinny kid I weighed 150 yeah. yes 150 pounds and uh and here he is wearing uh somebody's uniform probably was clues uh looked ridiculous uh the uh the scout tony pacheco who signed uh tony for the red tells me the story that there was a conversation between scouts uh, in spring training 1960 uh, uh, looking at the young Reds players, the youngest of the Reds players, guys like Tony, 18 years old, and, and a little bit of an argument broke out between the Tony and uh, the Reds' chief scout. And uh, the chief scout uh, said, well, who among these guys do you think doesn't belong to, to be here? And uh, Pacheco said, I forget the name of the player, but Pacheco said, well, you know, that guy, uh, this, I think it was a catcher. He said, that, that guy's got to go home. Well, didn't, Tony didn't know. The fellow other scouts knew that that player was uh, signed by, uh, I believe, the scout that, that in charge of the minor leagues was um, was Segui, Phil, Phil Segui, was how it's pronounced in America. Uh, Diego Segui was uh, yeah. the player, the great pitcher from Cuba. But Phil Segui said, well, you know, your guy didn't look so great, Tony, Tony Perez. Why don't we send him home instead? And and all Pacheco said was, by then he realized, hey, I'm getting too close to this guy's nerve point because uh, he signed this catcher. I, I said you should send home. Uh, Tony said, well, just just give you know give Perez a chance. He said, uh, we'll see how it works out. Well, uh, and later that year, 1960, Tony's in Geneva. Uh, he's making a lot of errors as a second baseman. The team was just a bunch of defensive butchers. And that very night. Uh, uh, in June, you know, West High here in Cincinnati was typically late getting out of, uh, you know, graduating their seniors. And so Pete Rose comes to the uh, ballpark in Geneva, a couple of bats slung over his shoulder. And his manager, uh, 
Reno Di Benedetti says to him, "Who are you?" Because he never he didn't know who the guy was. He didn't, he didn't have an exact day that Rose is reporting. He said, "Who are you?" And classic said, well, Ro- classic Rose anecdote. Here. Yeah, right. yeah. He didn't baseman. say, uh, I'm, I'm, "I'm Pete Rose." He said, "I'm your new second baseman." Yeah. And sure enough, that night. Tony uh, made another error, dropped a pop-up uh, behind first base. Uh, the ball was off the bat of uh, the great Richie Allen. And in his own mind, the manager said, you know what, I'm going to make a profit out of this Rose kid. He is my new second base. And tomorrow night he's going to be in there at second base because I'm sick of seeing all these errors. He put Tony on the DL. As I understand, the only time in his entire career he ever got DL, he put Tony on the DL. He puts Rose at second base. Tony comes back a couple weeks later as a third baseman. And the rest is history. You know, Tony came to the big leagues as a first baseman, platooning with Gordy Coleman, but but got hit, made it made his name for himself at third base. Mm-hmm. In '67, he made the All Star team. That was his breakout season, and played third base. And frankly, quite a creditable third base uh, until the trade for Joe Morgan, where it cleared way for Tony at first, and they and they they shipped uh, Lee May, the first baseman, down to uh, Houston with Tommy Helms and. Uh, the whole point of me telling you this story at length is that, you know, Tony, unbeknownst to a lot of people, most of his errors came as a third baseman in the sense of a throwing error. By his last year as a third baseman for the Reds in 1971, um, he was rated the uh, had the best range and I think the highest fielding percentage of any uh, third baseman uh, in the major in, in the National League. So Tony was actually, by the time he got done after four or five years, the position was really a good defensive third baseman. Yeah, really interesting story about how, of all people, to to knock him off second base. Oh yeah, just another future. Uh, Red. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned you mentioned Joe Luckup and uh, and of course Greg Rhodes, the the great Reds historian, and and you know. Uh, Greg, Greg Gages, the sabermetrician, who has been so instrumental in many of the books we've done, you know, we couldn't, none of us could ever prove that it was the only time in baseball history where one Hall of Famer replaced another at the same position as rookies. And I say two Hall of Famers because, in my mind, Pete Rose is well, even though he's not in sure. the hallowed halls. That's the first time in history we think that that ever happened. We just can't prove it because it's hard to through all that history and say, well, when were these two guys in, in, in rookie ball together and who replaced who? But it stands the reason that it probably never happened before that it ever came down that way. Well, if Greg Gages can't uh, prove it, then no one can. That's the way I look yeah. at it. <laughs> Amen, guy. brother. Yeah. Amen. Um, so it, it's interesting to me. Uh, there's a great picture in the book of that Geneva Redlegs team with uh, a little mm-hmm. skinny uh, Tony uh, and, and then Pete Rose, just looking like Pete Rose. Um Mm-hmm. Both in the, those Geneva Red Lakes uniforms, but um, Perez actually, before we get up to his, his time in the major leagues, he was actually sent back to rookie ball the next year, and and that's that's sort of an odd situation for a guy that's a future Hall of Famer. Yes. And uh, without a even doubt, though, even though he he hit well, had to be. Yep. But yeah, I mean, well, sent, but he had to be, had to be one of the few times in history that a, a future Hall of Famer got sent back to rookie ball for a second season. You know, and part of it, I think, the major part of it. And this is to the Reds' great credit that they did this. Uh, you know, Phil Sagey and others recognized that Tony, uh, even though he was a popular Red, he, he was having trouble with the language, as you can well imagine. Never spoke a word of English until he got to this country. Picked up a few words uh, when he got to spring training, and a few more words when he got to Geneva. But he he couldn't he couldn't acclimate because it was just he and five other Cubans. I think it was hanging out together. And by the end of the year, I think three. 
no, four of the six were, were gone because the only other Cuban in that picture uh, you mentioned is uh, Martin Diego Jr., son of the great Martin Diego Sr., arguably the greatest Cuban player of all time, maybe the best, best all-around player right. of all time, including Babe Ruth, because he could both hit and, and pitch. But Tony just um, – their, their feeling about Tony was that if we can give him another year in Geneva and not move him – to Rocky Mount quite yet. Well, there is going to be racism down there. There's going to be racism in the South. And, you know, Geneva was much more amenable uh, to watching uh, the dark-skinned Latinos play. There was actually a really good Puerto Rican population, and they adopted the Cubans as their own in Geneva. We can send him there a second year. He'll, he'll be able to acclimate himself. And Tony said at that second year is when he realized he was a prospect, not a suspect, because he, he was the MVP of the league and uh, had phenomenal numbers. Even though he had good numbers, as you mentioned, his first season, it was that second year where he blossomed. I think he hit maybe 28 home runs, had a ridiculous number of RBIs, maybe 120 RBIs. Uh, one, I think he was, you know, won the batting title, if I'm not mistaken, 348 uh, batting average. And that's where he came to fulfillment as a, as a young player because he recognized that he had, as he put it, a chance to make it in this game. And, uh, you know, it's to the Reds' credit. It should never be forgotten that they made that decision to send him there a second year. And I think, to a large extent, that's why he was so successful well, I think so quickly. Yeah, I think that's a great point and one that I hadn't considered because you're looking at a kid that's barely, you know, he's 18 years old, barely speaks English. And uh, to go ahead and push him into the uh, sort of the, the out of the frying pan into the fire down what would the, be the south right. at, in the early 60s, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and Macon, Georgia. And, and he got there eventually, right. uh, and he faced some some uh i mean you know the, the stands were segregated in macon and it was just a it was a bad right. time to be a uh, you know sort of dark-skinned cuban player playing down there and uh, it's true. I, I think that affected it's him true. Didn't it? it it did he uh he's even talked about it. he said that he was he was fine in geneva and he was fine in, in san diego uh with the padres the triple a franchise in the pacific coast league where he also was the mvp and that was 1964 he said but in between it was rough in Rocky Mount. It was rough in Macon, Georgia. Uh, Macon, especially uh, because I got to visit there. There's the ballpark still exists. The great Luther Williams Field, where they filmed a lot of movies, including Jackie Robinson's Forty Two, and uh, I think uh, there's a movie by Clint Eastwood about baseball scouting that was filmed there. Um, and and Tony, he made the point, and I got to hear this for myself firsthand from the people in Macon. There was a rope that ran right in the, up the middle of the grandstand. It was blacks on one side and whites on another. You know, that's one thing, but it's quite another when you consider that all the Reds minor leagues, except for San Diego, they would travel around in these, um, these three Chevrolet station wagons, uh, white exterior, red interior, three bench seats, the last bench, or last bench seat fading backward toward the highway, the cars behind you. And I know this because this is the car I rode around with is a, young fella in 12 and 13 growing up in central New York, 40 miles from Tony and Geneva. So that's how these players got around. So Tony would be there with his, I think there were three or four other black teammates. Oh, he was the only Cuban on that making ball club. When they go on the road, they couldn't take their meals in the, in the restaurant. Speaking of the black players, they had to have the, the sandwiches brought out to them in the Chevrolet steaks, station wagons, and they would eat their meals there. They couldn't use the restrooms for the most part, even though the players got along fabulously. The only place, Tony had sanctuary was in the clubhouses, both at home in Macon and, and on the road. And, um, man, you don't think that makes an impact. You, you're, you, you come from an environment which was basically integrated two generations before 
American baseball was integrated in America by Jackie Robinson. And all of a sudden, you're in the States, you don't speak the language, you're being exposed to this racism, which you have no idea what the history of it was. Uh, but, but now you're a victim of it. So, yeah, for Tony, it was really rough and, and really eye-opening that he would experience that so early in his uh, career in the States. Yeah, think about it as a 20-year-old or so, you know, 21. Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and still not a great command of English, the English language yet, and it's just no. it's, it's just outrageous to put a kid in that uh, situation. But by 64, he was 22. He, he made his Major League debut. I guess that was Fred Hutchinson's last year. I don't know if he uh, – Yeah. He, I guess he, he debuted. Was Hutch. Hutch was still there when he debuted, right? He was still with the team, I think. He was there, and, 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 and Tony, this is another traumatic thing. Even though it didn't hit – Tony, um, the way it would have hit the Reds, who would have played for Hodge, guys like Jim O'Toole, late Jim O'Toole, late great Jim O'Toole, was so proud of the fact that he has a plaque in the Reds Hall of Fame, you know, right next to Hutch's manager. They saw him, the manager, Fred Hutchinson, as a robust, you know, former pitcher, tough as nails uh, manager. Tony didn't get to know that robust uh, uh, Red, but what he, what he got to know was the Fred Hutchinson who was dying, basically, in the 1964 season. and. Yeah. Tony saw the admiration and the love the, his teammates had for the, for the great Hutch. And uh, he, he, he got to see that firsthand. And that was almost like the end of an era in the sense that, you know, that's who championed Pete Rose to come to the big leagues was Hutch in 1963 and was just a father figure to so many Reds. Well, Tony saw him dying. And Tony was here in, uh, in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, I think he came up briefly during the 64 season, came back. Uh, in September, uh, he was later returned uh, to um, San Diego to help that team win the championship of the PCL. But, you know, Tony had these raw emotions of seeing all this happen in front of him. Uh, Fred Hutchinson dying and the players wanting to win the pennant for Fred and couldn't quite do it. That great full job by the by the uh, Phillies that year, uh, they, they couldn't close the door. The Cardinals won it, but... The Reds folded too because it, it appeared at one point that they were going to run away with it. Speaking of the Reds, but you know they lost some games down the stretch, and uh, Tony got to witness all this. And uh, I remember, I remember looking at the roles of the box scores of those games in '64. That Reds team did fabulously down the stretch on the road, but they really couldn't close the door on those games at home. And the attendance really wasn't very good uh, for that team in '64 here in Cincinnati. And uh, Tony, I remember Tony telling me that we had better crowds in San Diego watching us play because San Diego was you know, obviously a future major league city, great ballpark, great ownership, great hotel, Stardust Hotel. The, the players were kings of the of the world out in San Diego. So for Tony, Cincinnati was, was a different world, too. Not only was the South a different world, but Cincinnati was a different world because he had more success, if you will, in San Diego, much bigger fan base out there than there was here for home games. So, yeah, Tony, Tony's... Uh, baptism was was rough when he got to the the big leagues here in cincinnati and of course in uh 65 he was platooning with uh gordy coleman at first base and i believe he platooned in 66 too and then doors swung wide in 67 when he got the third baseman's job yeah and of course 67 was his first big year and he uh, first of yep. his uh seven i think all-star game appearances and you talked a moment right. ago about the end of an era with fred hutchinson and i think really those late 60s teams kind of get disregarded a little bit because of the big red machine, but that was really the beginning of the machine and the beginning of that uh, era. Some really good teams under Dave Bristol, who's going to the Reds Hall of Fame this year. And uh, right. and Perez was a big part of 
I guess, uh, really getting the big red machine into into gear in some ways. And 25 years old in 67 oh. and already an all-star. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I could draw a parallel uh, with Joey Votto because Joey really didn't have his if – if I got my years correct, it might have been 20, age 24 season, might have been age, probably age 24 season for Votto. But, and you know this from being a baseball writer and having studied the game so much, and by the way, I love all your work too, is that Tony – because of his late start and because of Otto's late start, man, it's hard to make the Hall of Fame because typically a Hall of Famer, by his very nature, he's up here at age 21. He's having great season in his, seasons in his early 20s, and by the time he's 25, he's an established star. Well, you know, Tony didn't have his breakout season until 67 when he was 25, and Votto, his age 24 season. So I think Votto's going to make it. Obviously, Tony's in. We're talking about two first basemen, and I think other than maybe shortstop, for this franchise where we've had guys like Roy McMillan, Leo Cardenas, uh, uh, um, uh, we've had um, Barry Larkin, uh, Dave Concepcion, exactly. Um, I think first baseman might be the position that yeah. might be the most distinguished because you had guys like, even before um, even before Frank McCormick, you go back to guys like you know Jake Dauber, but certainly when Frank McCormick came along for the 1940 World Champions and then, then Clue and then... Uh, and then Tony, and then, of course, now Votto. And, you know, Rose later played the position. Is that that's been a position of great distinction. So um, I would, um, uh, except for maybe the Yankees with the great Lou, Lou Gehrig, I put, up, I put the Reds first base up against almost any other franchises. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I guess we need to sort of touch on the big red machine years, uh, specifically the mid-'70s, because we started to touch on it earlier, but, the thing that always strikes me about Perez is, yes, he's a Hall of Famer and he's gotten accolades in America, but every single, all the other stars on that big red machine team, they everyone agree that Tony was the, the soul of the team, I think is the way you put it in the book. And and he really yeah, was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he, he was because, um, you know, there's that great mosaic um, down at the Great American Ballpark um, where Tony's out front and center, and, and that's where... You know, he didn't want to be, but everybody else wanted him to be in that mosaic. And to the credit of John Allen, who I think it was who commissioned that mosaic and put Tony out front, was that Tony more so got his due uh, after his career was over, which is so interesting because one of the former Reds uh, officials, it would have been Jim Ferguson, who was the Reds media relations guy back in the big red machine years, he said that, you know, all the, all the other great Reds, the Morgans, the Roses, the Benches, is that, you know, their stature has, has been great. I mean, and it was great from, from the start of the Big Red Machine years, but it's sort of leveled off. I mean, but with Tony, his his the luster on his star has become even brighter because, you know, words come out now what an, what a great impact he had on that club. Even Sparky Anderson and, and Bob Housen, the great architect of the Big Red Machine, they said one of their biggest regrets was not understanding fully uh, the impact Tony was having in the clubhouse. Yes, Sparky knew that he would turn to Tony when he had a real problem in the clubhouse, even more so than Rose and Bench and Morgan. If I, he said, if I had a problem, Tony was the guy I sent in there. I said, "You, Tony, you straighten this out. It's your clubhouse. And so, you know, Sparky recognized that, but neither he nor Housen recognized that it was going to have such a deleterious effect on the ball club when Tony was removed from it. And no, Tony... No, Tony, that club would not have won the world championship in 1977. You know, your teammates think it would have. Joe Morgan said that trading Tony probably cost us two or three 
World Championships. That isn't true because the pitching went so far south in 77 that I raised the question. I said, not even with Lou Gehrig at first pick, would, it, would that team have won the uh, championship? And Gage has made the point, well, they would have come close because Lou's war was so high, it was over 10 games, and it wins above replacement that the Reds would have finished one game out in 77. So you can't really say that it wouldn't have made a huge difference if they had Lou Gehrig, but they still wouldn't have won it. And they might have become close in subsequent years, like the late 70s, early 80s, where Danny Dreesen's contribution had sort of waned, whereas Tony was still putting up great years in Montreal and Boston. So, yes, Tony, by his absence, uh, I think the, the, the lesson was learned by Hausman Anderson that we probably shouldn't have made that trade. But you know what? Tony... Uh, Bob Housem learned under the Great Branch Rick. He traded a guy a year early rather than a year late. He was trying to trade Tony even in the 1974 season when he recognized uh, that if we can get Greg, Greg Nettles in here, uh, we're going to be better off than with Tony. Because even though Tony had those great years in 70 and 72, and, and Bob Hamp, by the way, had that great board in his office, which rated each uh, player in the major leagues uh, and by position, where are my Reds guys? Where are they rated? Well, Tony went from probably the top first baseman in 70-72, you know, he might have been one or two, or how, depending on how you looked at guys like Stargell, you know, people like that, one or two, down to maybe five or six by the big red machine years. So um, they wanted to trade Tony early. They didn't recognize his impact in the clubhouse. And to this day, even though those great reds, Anderson and Housem, say it was their greatest regret, I would still put forth that, even with Tony, I don't think they would have won any more world championships after 1976, which, which you say, well, two world series, does that make them the dynasty? You know, the, the, the Oakland A's won three. Well, in terms of their dominance of the league, the greatness of their great eight, the way they dominated the MVP races and the all-star teams, that by far was the most decorated starting eight in major league history. Nobody's even come close to them, not even the, the great Dodgers teams of the mid-1950s that I talked about earlier with Sandy Amorose as a left fielder. But, of course, they had the great Jackie Robinson. Uh, they had uh, Duke, they had Duke uh, uh, Snyder. They had, um, they had the great, um, uh, who else we want to call off of that club? Uh, they had Roy Campanella, you know, people like that. Just a fabulous starting eight. And Spark Anderson makes the point. He said, well, I'm not saying they had the greatest starting eight of all time, but I remember the Dodgers because I came up through the Dodgers. And if there was ever a better team, among the starting eighth and the big red machine, you'd have to convince me of it because I don't think there was. And I, I don't think there was either. And Tony, to be front and center of that club, even though Joe Morgan won the MVPs back-to-back in 75-76, you could make a great case that among the unsung heroes, Tony, without question, was number one. No, I, Yes, I, I, can, I can absolutely sign on to that one. And, you know, he, uh, he did go to Montreal and Boston and Philadelphia and, and eventually came back around to Cincinnati and, and, and uh, in researching our book. Uh, I found a really uh, sort of cute anecdote, I guess, from uh, Perez when, from our, our chapter when uh, Pete Rose came back to Cincinnati in '84, um, and uh, or '80, yeah, '84, and uh, yeah, '84, yeah, and uh, Tony Perez was quoted, and, he, and, and it was just sounded like he was almost just giddy with excitement. You know, I never, he said something like, I, "I never thought I'd ever get a chance to play with Pete again. I certainly never thought I'd get a chance to play mm-hmm. for Pete." And he said, "We're going to change the attitude around here," and he really did. And then, mm-hmm. and then he went on to have a, a great season as a forty-three-year-old Perez did in Cincinnati. Didn't yeah, he? he did. Nineteen eighty-five, actually, that second season that Tony had in, in uh, 
Tony, you're part, you're talking about the renaissance of the Reds. It's so true. And by the way, I love the big 50 book you did. I mean, that, that to you. me is one of the best Reds book ever done. And, you know, um, the point of that resurgence, they had lost a hundred games in 1982 and, uh, Housen went out and brought Tony home, uh, brought Dave Parker back to town. Of course, Dave Parker was born here. He had the great years in, in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And then ultimately being brings Pete Rose home. And, and that, that, trough if you will that drought that you know the 100 game yep. losses in, in six in 1982 people tend to forget how quickly that team became respectable again and i i put it right in the lap of those three guys and of course dave conception was still was still here in the early 80s but that team not only did they win on the field you know quickly got in the second place and had all those second place finishes under pete rose on the early and mid 80s uh late 80s is that you know, people forget that Housem was the architect not only of the Big Red Machine year, 75-76, but really was the architect of the 90 team because he signed so many guys to contract as, as, a, as a return Reds general manager. And it really all did begin in 83, 84, 85. And when I think about Tony going to the Hall of Fame in 2000 and one of the guys who went in with him was Carlton Fisk, those, those, two, right, those two guys right there, if you look at war, OPS, whatever number you want to use, those are the best two 43-year-old players in Major League history. And I was taught at a young age, as a young writer, I just got my Hall of Fame vote in uh, 1990, I'm sorry, yeah, 1990 would have been my first year, maybe 91, I forget my first year of my Hall of Fame vote. I was told by some other grizzled veteran writers, they said, if you find a guy that's still playing well in his late 30s and early 40s, and by the way, steroids weren't even known of. Yeah, amphetamines, amphetamines were known of, and they have a great impact on the game itself, but steroids weren't known of. They said, you find a great player in his late 30s and early 40s, you're probably looking at a Hall of Famer, and certainly it was true with uh, Fisk and, uh, and Perez that they had great seasons uh, into the early 40s, and I, I just marvel at the fact that these guys are competing against 21-year-olds and still holding their own. That, to me, is just fabulous. Absolutely. And we talk about Perez getting a little bit of a late start. That was what told the tale about what a sort of generational type player he was, is that he was able to continue being productive uh, late into his career. And and hopefully that's what we're seeing from Joey Votto now. It's a really similar tale. Yeah, Um, I hope so. Definitely. Definitely hope so. You know, it it did take Tony a little while to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And what did that mean to him to ultimately finally be enshrined in Cooperstown? How important was that to him? Well, it was... It, it basically showed um, to him that he recognizes that he, he knows he wasn't the greatest Cuban player. He, he, you know, the interesting thing about the Cuban legacy, if you will, from uh, Diego to Minoso to Perez, or Perez as we like to call him properly in the Cuban language, is that those three guys, they all knew one another. Um, Tony even knew Diego. He was friends with Martin Diego Jr. He got to speak with Martin Diego Sr. Minoso saw, uh, I think he even played against uh, Diego. Uh, Tony idolized Minoso, who is such a shame that Minoso, to me, I, I, would, I would say he's the greatest Cuban player, even though Minoso might defer to uh, Diego. The one thing you have to say about Minoso is Tony's idol is that he made a great impact in, in the major leagues, and because of the color line, um, Diego never got to do that. But Tony, in rooting for Minoso, recognized that, you know, by the time Tony was, I think, in his um, third third or fourth professional season, at that same age, um, uh, Minoso was back home in Cuba. 
uh, working in a, in a garage, uh, ran a, a sandlot team, signed, found the players, signed the players. He, he was, didn't really get his shot, uh, in the major leagues until he got to Cleveland and ultimately made his name in Chicago. And he just got too late to start. I was thinking Minoso. So he never got the chance to put together Hall of Fame numbers. But I'm a big advocate that if you're held back by the color line and you don't get to really establish yourself into really your mid-20s, uh, you deserve more credit than you're being given. So Minoso, to me, is a Hall of Famer. Tony feels like Minoso should be a Hall of Famer. And, um, man, what a, what a regret to me that, you know, Minoso never got to make the hall, but Tony did. And I even tell the story in the book that, you know, Tony's father, the great Jose Manuel, he would not have believed that his son surpassed Minoso because that day when Tony was getting ready to leave to the States, he said to his mom, you know, in Espanol, of course, mom, you'll, 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 I'm going to become, I'm going to become better than Mini Minoso. And his mother said, no, Tony, you can't dream like that. That's just too big a dream. Well, in fact, he did surpass Minoso, and, and and that to me is the great story of Tony, the same guy he listened to on the radio and watched on TV. And, of course, Jim Bunning was instrumental in my book because he played with Minoso in a 56-57 winter ball uh, just as Castro was landing on the island and getting ready to take over the country within a couple of years with that march from uh, eastern Cuba to uh, Havana. Tony, he, 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 he knows what was lost uh, in, in the Castro years because whereas he got the – idolized Minoso, none that young Cubans got to idolize Tony because they didn't even know who he was. Well, we can only hope that uh, uh, Tony will sort of begin to get some of the, the accolades yeah. in, his, in his home country. And, and I think your book is a great start to that. I really hope it's widely read. Thank you. And, uh, and it's just a fascinating narrative. Again, not just of Tony's biography, but of all these uh, swirling things around him and, and, and where he's where he came from and, and just uh, – Always under the radar, even though one of the greatest players any of us have ever seen. So it's a really fascinating Yeah, you know, book. what's interesting, well, thank you. Interesting on that point uh, is I hope that your readers and listeners, you know, you've got the great website, you've done the great work, is that the, the readers and listeners will, when they get to the 27-page index in the back of the, not index, but appendix in the back of yes. the book, where I write about the other 199 Cuban major leaguers who didn't make the Hall of Fame, I hope they'll, They'll dig into that because it was so much fun, you know, giving guys their due. You know, Roger Angel said at the lead of that, if you've had even one at-bat or thrown one pitch in a major league, you're, you're stepping into the river, you become a part of it. Well, those 199 are a part of it, and yes. it's so integrated into American baseball. I mean, they um, they literally play with some great players. Up Speaking of these other 199 Cuban major leaguers, and it's all in there. and it, It's interwoven, you know, nice, tight thumbnails, hopefully very readable, entertaining for for people that they'll delve into and see what an impact uh, Cuban baseball has had on American baseball. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to weave our narrative and uh, the Cuban baseball narrative yeah. together because uh, it's, it's two countries that yeah. love baseball. So, uh, Definitely. Tony Perez from Cuba to Cooperstown. Um, I know you've been uh, doing signings. Uh, tell everybody where they can find the mm -hmm. book, and uh, we'll, of course, uh, link to it as well on the website when we post this up uh, and where they maybe can see you because I know you've been doing some signings. Yes, thank you so much for mentioning that. Uh, they can definitely get the book here in town in the brick-and-mortar, great book-and-mortar uh, stores, Joseph Beth Bookstore, both in Norwood and uh, northern Kentucky. And uh, obviously you can get it on Amazon. But where I'm going to be this weekend, uh, going into Father's Day, uh, Friday I'll be in what I call the Mecca of uh, Westside Baseball, which arguably is the Mecca of all baseball. 
because of the great players that have come out of uh, Cincinnati, particularly on the west side, is Price Hill Chili from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday, two days before Father's Day, and then the day before Father's Day, the 16th of June, I'll be at the Great Philly Market in the Beer Garden, well-placed there, I hope, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. So, uh, yeah, definitely come out. Uh, what's been fun for me is not just signing the book and selling the book. You know, that that's great, but I really, truly enjoy talking to Reds fans, especially in these down times, to just talk about their love affair, you know, with the Reds, how, where they grew up, how they grew up, um, what they're the big dog of in their own life, how they're respected by other people in their lives, and just equate everything to, to Reds baseball. I mean, that, that's been a blast for me, as I just love connecting with the fans. So, yeah, come out. On Friday and Saturday, Saturday, and let's talk some Reds baseball, and let's uh, talk about Tony Pettis. Absolutely. And let me ask you one last thing here, because it's something that I've been sure. amazed at through the, the last few months of of this process uh, with the book. Um, is Does it still astound you how passionate Reds fans are about this team? Even in a, a time that's sort of bad like it is right now, I've just been blown away by the passion for the oh, fans of this team. Me just too, amazes Chad. Me. And, you know, you're right, me too. I, I feel the same way about it is that um, – even though fans are coming out to the ballpark in much fewer numbers, is that they're still listening to the game, you know, on radio. This is such a great radio town, and, and they're, of course, watching on TV. But, you know, maybe they don't. Maybe this team doesn't deserve their hard-earned dollar as far as coming to the ballpark. And I, I, w- I would agree with them on that basis. I think the team, unfortunately, is, is at a low point probably in my history, my 40 years in Cincinnati. It's, it's the worst drought I've personally experienced. Yeah, things were tough. In the early 2000s, they had that big drop between the time they got Griffey and they went to the postseason in 2010. But, I mean, we're going on five losing seasons, and not just losing seasons, but, you know, 90-95 losses. They're going to threaten 100 this year. That, Despite that, the fans are still watching, they're still reading, they're still listening, and they still feel deeply that the Reds are going to make a comeback and they're going to get good again. So, I mean, how can you not feel good about the city when you hear stories like that, I mean, some other cities, maybe they'd give up on the team. Maybe the team would have to threaten to leave and, you know, relocate elsewhere. I know this happened uh, in Tampa Bay, let's say. You know, it's not going to happen. They're not going to be moved. There's talk of it. Uh, there's talk of the Marlins leaving. You know, I don't think it's going to happen. But this this team, which had the great admittedly first all-professional team uh, in 1869, the fans are still with them through thick and thin, still following them. They can still tell you the Billy Hamilton stories, the Joey Votto stories, Suarez stories, uh, Tucker Barnhart stories. They love the Reds, and uh, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's just very heartening to see that the team is still such a part of the fabric you know, of the city. You can make a good point, and I've been told, I didn't uh, originate this myself, but somebody once told me that our greatest export is a city. You know, it's not so much the... Uh, the Procter & Gamble ivory soap, it's a, it's a big red machine. And I have to go no farther than, than Cuba to say that even in Cuba, even though they don't know Tony, Tony Pérez, they know the big red machine. They know of Rose Morgan and Bench. And, uh, man, for a close society like that to know the big red machine, that, that's pretty impressive. And to this day, uh, in the people's minds, it's still the big red machine because it's the center of their lives. And uh, that, that just does my heart well. I'm sure it's the same for you. Absolutely. I said recently in print, I think this, this team's just sort of woven into the DNA of the city. Yeah. And uh, and it's been really gratifying to see some of that passion uh, this year. I, I can't encourage all of our listeners enough to go out and get uh, 
Tony Perez from Cuba to Cooperstown. I mean, if you're a, not just a Reds fan, but a baseball fan, because it's such a just a, a fascinating story and a really good look at one of the guys who deserves more recognition from the great history of this team. John, uh, John Arardi, really happy to talk to you. Love the book, um, and, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. And if people got a couple extra bucks to spend, don't mind making it a one-two punch with the Big Fifty by Chad Dotson. Put that with the Tony Patton's book, and you got you got a winner, man. You got a father's day your dad will never forget for sure. I really appreciate that. You know, we're going to be at the uh, Joseph Beth Aaron Rookwood uh, this week, and so I'm going to expect to see a lot of you guys that are listening here. I want you to make sure to point out to me that you've got both the Big Fifty and uh, from Cuba to Cooperstown in your hand uh, when you come to see me out there. So, John, great talking to you. Um, thanks to everybody for uh, for listening to the podcast. And for John Arardi, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. Thanks for listening to Red Leg Nation Radio from RedLegNation.com. Subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. And join us for discussion of all things Reds at RedLegNation.com. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.